wrapping it up today. Tonight will be the final uh, portion. And, um, you know, I've really enjoyed this series. I've heard from many of you that you have as well. We have covered a lot of ground. We have dealt with a lot of things. We've talked a lot about all the different subversive practices of Jesus and how he was actually able to step into a world where the empire was stepping on to a lot of people, and he pushes back in beautiful and peaceful ways that um, we will continue to be saturating ourselves inside of because it's good. And it edifies and equips us to be the people that we were called to be. We learned how to speak truth to power. And in, with that in mind, I wanted to speak a little bit tonight, just at least to start off with, it seems fitting that I would start off with some truth that has been spoken to my power as of late. This is my two-year-old on the right. His name is Sawyer. He looks cute. He isn't that cute right now. He is in a defiant two stages, and you know, actually that image right there really wraps up where he's at in life, because Wyatt could not be any more compassionate and kind, wrapping his arms around that, and he's just whatever about it. He's, he's over it. He has not given him the time today. Won't even look at him. Won't even dignify him by looking him in the eyes. So we have been dealing with some Sawyer as of late. I'm going to calm down. But this weekend in particular, he's been very stressful. Michael Dan is here, too, if you want to be kind to him and make space for him in your life. He's another great man, Rachel. Whenever you have a chance. Um, Sawyer, though, this week on Tuesday night, Lauren, was it? Okay. Tuesday night, wakes up in the middle of the night, and uh, he's feeling sick. And he, he looks at his crib, and he thinks, now I could just puke in private, and I could just leave it in this minimal space, you know, contain the damage. But why not bring everybody in on the party? And so he calls on mom and dad, he climbs up, and he yaks all over the bed, and... This is actually the photo immediately after that. <laughs> why is he smiling? Because he's a sinner. That's why. He is rotten to the core. And if you don't believe me that he's a sinner, I'll give you further evidence. Look at my look of disgust there, okay? I'll give you further evidence. This is an absolutely true story. Lauren will verify it for you afterwards. Uh, uh, the night after that night, Sawyer was not falling asleep again. Um, but he wasn't puking and he wasn't even crying. He was singing in his bed, and uh, we were standing outside of his bed, and while singing in bed for two-year-olds is ideally, more often than not, a cute thing, should the song be, twinkle, twinkle, little star, Jesus loves me, but when they're singing Sir, Sir Mix-a-Lot at midnight, <laughs> and your two-year-old is literally, honest to God, just saying, oh my gosh, look at her butt, over and over again, <laughs> middle of the night. I mean, the kid knows like five words, and he's already misogynist. So we are very concerned. Pray for him, church. And obviously pray for Lauren, too. I mean, she shouldn't be having those kind of playlists just right there. Um, but the night after that, then, uh, Sawyer was screaming. He could not fall asleep again. He was crying uncontrollably. And I tried to uh, do the fake, I can't hear him. Maybe Lauren can. Lauren will go in there. She apparently was applying the same strategy. So... Eventually, I went in there, and I picked sauce up. That's what he's known on, as on the streets, is sauce, soy sauce. And I pulled him into my arms, and we rocked him, and I sang him made advice. And I was trying to explain this to Jeff Johnson the other day, and I don't know if I did an adequate job, but have you ever had some of those moments where you are surprised by how holy the ground all of a sudden becomes? Like where everything kind of just freezes, and it stands stills, and you, you just remember where you actually are. And like, what is in your hands? I'm holding this kid who is being soothed by some made advice, and obviously I was hitting the notes just perfectly to really land that plane, but 
I had that moment where I just thought about this incredible gift that is Sawyer. I mean, Sawyer, too, he was born two months early. He spent 40 days in the hospital. He had some trying times where we could not wait to get him to come home. And so just to be in that moment and remember that this is an incredible gift. I've been thinking about that since that night and thinking about how easy it is for us to let our love for others grow stagnant and stale, how easy it is for our excitement to all of a sudden expire, how easy it is for the people that we are overwhelmed by to be those that we overlook. And if it's easy for me to do that with Sawyer, my own flesh and blood, the child that I see every day, can you imagine how often I do that with God? How often I do that with the centrality of Christ that I proclaim on Sundays? How often I actually forget about a love for God, forget about his role in my life? I, have, um, I had a sermon for you guys this week that I wrote on uh, Luke 17 and the 10 lepers, and you'd have loved it. I, at 8.25 last night, though, I had this text that I read, not a text on the phone, but a text in the scripture from Revelation, and um, I read it, and I wept immediately afterwards. Could not articulate for you why I wept, but I read it. And I just wept. I don't know if I'm, I, I know I'm more moved by poetic wording and, and things of that sort, and that's what this is. But as I was weeping, I remembered I asked a pastor a long time ago, I said, so can you tell me exactly how is it that you, that you know when God is speaking to you? How do you know when God is speaking into your life? And my pa- pastor friend said, uh, he goes, um, whenever you feel your heart breaking, that is the voice of God inside of it. Wherever there is a crack and there is a movement, Lean in and listen up, because the Spirit is trying to say something. And so in fidelity to that moment last night and that pastor friend of mine, um, I want to look at a text tonight. And this text, I think, it sat on me in such a heavy way, because I think there's something in it that is here for us all. There is a text I want to go to that I think will speak volumes into your life in the same way that it's speaking volumes into my life. Um, But before we do, can we pray? Jesus. God, you are good, you are faithful, Lord, we love you, and uh, we pray, God, that you would speak into this space, God, through this text, Lord, through your spirit, wake us up, God, to see you. In Jesus' name, we all pray together, amen. So, before I get into Revelation, I don't know if I've actually ever even preached on any text in Revelation, because... Revelation is, how do I best explain it? Okay, so this is a Bible right here. You know your church is in rough shape when you're introduced. This is a Bible, okay? <laughs> That's a Bible. Now, Revelation, if this is a Bible, it's giving you an idea of how complicated Revelation is. The Re- commentary on Revelation would be about two times, you know what I'm saying? Like, there's a lot of speculation. There's a lot of different ways that people go into the weeds and trying to understand what it is that this book that we call Revelation, what it's actually all about. What are all the images entailing? What are the metaphorical? What is the reason why they use the metaphors that they do? The symbolism inside of it. What is the purpose behind it? I'm not going to get into all of that tonight. I just don't have, um, we're not going to do that. Uh, I will say this, however, though. One of the things that I love about the book of Revelation, as complicated and at times frustrating as it can be, is Revelation has this amazing ability to, um, it's apocalyptic literature, which means that it reveals reality for you. It sobers you up. It highlights where the distorted areas in your paradigm, in your sight, where they happen. 
And it says, here is the real world, the one that you have been declining to actually look at for what it is. Revelation pulls you into the bigger picture. This text tonight does that for me. Uh, Revelation 2, 1 through 5 is where we're going to go. And these are the words of Jesus that are going to be, he's speaking to seven specific churches. um, And it reads like this, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works. I know your toil and your patient endurance. How you cannot and you will not bear with those who are evil. But you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. Jesus is saying, I see you, Ephesus. I I see you out on the streets. I see you feeding the hungry. I see you wrapping your arms around the widows and the orphans. I see you loving on one another. I see you doing good things, and I know that it has not always been easy. I know you've broken a sweat, but you didn't flinch. You did not flee. You stayed the course. You are still here. You are persevering. I see you. You're doing amazing things, and I'm for you. I'm with you. I love it. But I do have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Jesus commends their abundance of labor, but he confronts their absence of love. You're not the lover that you used to be. Something got lost along the way. You're doing good things, don't get me wrong. I'm excited, I'm enthused about all that I'm seeing, but there's something about... You don't love like you used to at first, in the beginning. I am uh, grateful, actually, in this moment right now that this text is not directly to us. You know, we read a text, we're jumping in on a conversation between two other people. How nosy of you to do so. Don't even ask first, Sam. But this text right here is a letter that is written to the church in Ephesus, a real church with real people at a real time, doing real things with a real story. This is uh, written in about 80 A.D. Ephesus, their church, started in about 50 A.D. Now, if this text is saying, if Jesus himself is saying here that you do not love the way you loved at the beginning, we really ought to ask, if we're going to understand the weight of what is inside of this text, how is it that they loved at the beginning? What kind of lovers were they when they just got it going? And thankfully, in the book of Acts, we have an account of that. The story in Acts is that Paul is stepping into the area of Ephesus. He has got his posse alongside of them, and they are telling the good news of Jesus. And why it's called good news in that time and in that place is because there really wasn't that much good news going on in Ephesus. In Ephesus, there was an understanding that there were gods, there were powers that were unknown and unnamed, but they were always angry. They had beef with humanity. They wanted to squash them out, take them out, drop down a hurricane, tornado, do what you had to do, maybe not even provide the harvest. Whatever it looks like, the gods are angry, and so you had to, in response, to counter their anger and actually make ends meet for yourself, you had to appease these gods. This is where things like sorcery, in ritualistic rhythms in the lives of, of different religious uh, occults back in the first century. This is where those come from, is because you were trying to appease angry gods. And so imagine living inside of that kind of fear, 
where you don't know if you're doing good. You don't know if you're actually like being faithful to these gods. All you know is that they are angry. And so you're always living in that ambiguity. You're always living inside of that anxiety. You just do not know. And then all of a sudden, one day, here comes this man. And he says, I'm Paul, and I have some good news for you. The gods are not angry. You don't have to live in fear anymore. You don't have to stay up at night freaking out and worrying about these unnamed forces, unknown forces. There is only one force, and this force is on your side. It's for you. That's the kind of good news, the story that will immediately go viral. It absolutely capsizes people. So much so that we have an account of some of the first people's response. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried, so they're going to try their hand at this new religious idea, this good news that they have just received. And it says that... um, They tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of the Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. So they're going door to door at this point, and they're actually saying, if there are evil demons, spirits, darkness of any kind inside of this place, this building, this family, we're going to come in there and we're going to do something about it. We're rolling up our sleeves and we're going to do something about this. This is them right here. So they're going to this place, and I love this. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. That is an actual like, title that they took on themselves. So in the immediate aftermath of hearing the good news of Jesus, they went zero to 60 real quick. Let me, let me give you an example of what this looks like. After my first guitar lesson, I think in high school, I literally came home, and I did not practice the chords I just learned. I opened up my notebook and started writing out different band name ideas. Like, I didn't even know how to hold a guitar. I still had, like, a fake guitar that I was learning on, but I was going zero to 60 real quick because my eyes were open to the possibilities. I think I even landed on Motown Moberg, which I thought was not bad at the time. Now, looking back, it maybe isn't that great. But you have here the seven sons of Sceva. We are the seven sons of Sceva. They got, like, I'm thinking leather jackets, matching tattoos, a neatly refined logo. They're psyched about it. They're going door to door. They're looking for evil spirits, and they're going to do something about this. This is their first time on the job right here. One day, the evil spirit got sassy with them and said, Jesus, I know, yet Paul I'm familiar with, but who are you? Who are you? Sit down. Be humble. Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such, we, should, you know, we gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. The word of the Lord, you guys. <laughs> Thanks be to God, huh? The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now you think about these boys, their first day on the job. It's not like a flying success. They're, they're walking into a house with high hopes and they're Chests are all puffed out, and they run out naked, bloodied up by some old man who's got a demon inside of him. Oh, you got to laugh at Scripture. It's good stuff. Now, we would look at that, and we'd think, well, this is a complete flop. Whatever the spark was that set fire in Ephesus, it has to be gone now. There's no way any kind of success story is going to seep out of these fools right here. There's no way anything good is going to happen, and yet something good happens. The text says, when this became known, this being the massive failure and flop, when this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they 
had done. They were a flop. It didn't go so well. But the people heard this story of a group of boys who believed that anything was possible, that believed that if love wins, let's actually go see if this is true for ourselves. Not just say it and figure out how we can theologize about it, but how do we actually pursue that? That believed that the world and the future could actually have hope. They put their necks on the line. They lost their clothes. They got beaten up. But they put themselves out that they were bold and they were brash and they were inspiring. And Ephesus changed forever because of it. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Consider all that you just read. Now, I don't know if you guys know this about me, but I am officially a church planner, right, Debbie? We're church planners? To be a church planner, you have to go to a lot of church planting trainings. And in the trainings we have gone to, we have learned about, um, what have we learned about? Have we learned about mine? We've learned about, um, you know, how to get, like, the right kind of pamphlets put out there, how to, like, um, write your bylaws and do membership. Did we miss the membership lesson? <laughs> I was thinking about um, how to do, uh, how to have a logo that's, like, edgy, but yet relevant and kind of uh, reverent at the same time. Like, do not, you know, all these different pieces. My hunch is when I read this text that the Ephesians didn't go to that training, right? When you read this text, what is the kind of feeling that you get from it? What, is the, what do you feel that they were all about? What do you think that this was like when you saw these people coming together? Let me put it like this. If you had never come to the table before and you drove up on 4747 Lindale Avenue and you came down and you saw a bunch of people outside around a bonfire, some of them were clothed, Others were not, some were bleeding, some were not. And then you pulled over and think, what is going on? Do I call the cops? Well, first, I'm going to at least inch a little bit closer and look inside and see what they're doing. And you notice that they're burning all these crazy things, like demonic things, like Ouija boards or tarot cards or Packer jerseys or things of that sort that are dark <laughs> and twisted that we want nothing to do with. Would your first thought be, oh, this must be the new church plant in town? Oh, this is... This is fellowship right here. These people, they must be a 501c3 tax-exempt organization. That's what is happening here. Is that where your mind would go? Or would you read a text like this and see a people like this and recognize that they were chaotic, that they were out of control, that they didn't have a lot of organization, that they were impulsive, that they believed big things, that they were brave, and that they loved very loudly. This community that started up, they loved very loudly, very bravely. And it's crazy, and I don't know if all their conduct would be perfectly approved anymore, but when Jesus says in Revelation that you don't love like you used to love, this is the love that he was referring to. Do you recognize that? Do you recognize it in your own life? See, I think this is why it hit me so deeply, because I never danced naked around a bonfire, but, but I remember loving Jesus like that. I remember reacting to the good news. You know, I remember growing up, and I won't go whole nine yards on a testimony on you guys, but I remember growing up, my understanding of God was not that unlike the Ephesians prior to Paul. Paul. 
I remember a youth pastor telling me when I was trying to get on a youth group trip that I could not come because I'd be a bad influence on the other kids. I remember thinking, this is horse. I don't want anything to do with it. I remember getting into a lot of trouble, having a lot of spend, spending a lot of like sleepless nights on wasted stupidity, but I also remember, to use Christian language, I remember the hour of my salvation. I remember when Jesus became real. And I remember running downstairs and crying and telling my mom that I could never go back to anything else again. I didn't know what it meant for me. That was a Thursday afternoon. I could tell you it was about 4.30 in the p.m. And because of a uh, little impulsive, they would say, is uh, that following Monday, I switched my major at school from business to Bible because I just knew that if this story was true, like it has to be true, like what I just experienced, if this is actually true and God is a God of love and that love is directed at somebody like me, then nothing else can stay the same. I remember going out with friends and like being that awkward, annoying guy that would change every conversation into Jesus. We could be watching football. I would talk about Case Keenum. And somehow I would twist it around how to Jesus. He scores touchdowns. Doesn't even make sense anymore, but like I would say that stuff. I remember being that way. I remember praying in the woods by our parents' house for hours at end. I remember staying after worship services just so I could sit in that space a little bit longer. I remember journaling all night long about my love for Jesus, how much I love Jesus, what I wanted to do for Jesus. I, I just, do you remember the joy of when you first met Jesus, when you first loved Jesus, when he first swept you off your feet, when you first recognized the reality, the ground of all being, ultimate reality was manifested in this one person? Do you remember what that encounter was like? Do you remember... I met somebody a couple of weeks ago, I won't name names, but newer Christian. Do you, remember, do you remember being so excited about Jesus that you would often like say things that Jesus never said, but you'd say that he said them? You know what I'm talking about? Middle of the conversation with this guy, this guy goes, he's talking about, I don't even know what he's saying. He goes, but you know, hey, it's like Jesus says, early bird gets the worm. And, and, I, and I didn't have the heart to say that, so he didn't say that at all. Like, <laughs> Because it's just so beautiful. I remember what it's like to be over the moon. I remember what it's like to be completely swept up in this story and how nothing else mattered if this was true. I remember what it's like to hinge on every word that Jesus was saying to me. And then at some point in my life, I stopped fixating on all that Jesus was saying to me and I started dissecting all the things that Jesus used to say. I lost my first left love. I abandoned it. And it's a slow, stagnant process. I mean, there's a reason why I think uh, the scriptures kind of lay out the church's relationship with Jesus as a marriage, because marriage stagnancy happens, right? I mean, Lauren and I, we used to text each other saying, like, girl, when I get you home, now it's like, girl, when are you coming home? I'm going to need your help around here. I'm about to lose my mind. But we're not stagnant, just to be clear. We're doing just fine. You can rest assured. Like, I love you, babe. Point being, though, is that if you are not careful, how easily can you leave the love that you started out with? How easily can you lose your passion? Jesus looks at the church in Ephesus, and he says, I love all that you are doing. I love your hearts to serve. I love the way that you are connecting at Stonebridge. I love the cultural competency trainings. I love how you are calling into question institutions of white supremacy 
how you are pushing back on patriarchy, how you're trying to go about doing a good thing in a very hard world, how you're staying in the course. I love all of that. I commend you for your labor, but I'm going to confront you about your love. You don't love me like you once did. But then he tells us how we can go back. He says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Repent is, is a, it's tied to a Jewish word that's teshuva, which means basically to turn around. There is a path that you were put upon, and at some point along the way you wandered. To teshuva, to repent, is to find your way back onto the street where you belong. It's to make your way back home. Now, when Jesus is saying this, repent, we read that next line when we're talking about loving like we once loved, when we're talking about having passion like we once had passion, we would say, uh, repent and feel, once you, feel what you once felt. Repent and get that old loving feeling back in you. Because our understanding of passion and love, it tends to be around a sensational idea, but that's not what Jesus says here. He says, do the works that you did at first. Go back to the dating stage. Hold the doors. Buy the flowers. Stay up light, late talking to me, thinking about me. Do the works you did when we first got this whole thing started. Because after 30 years for the church in Ephesus, they went from bonfires to bylaws from the seven sons of Sceva to seven highly effective habits of people. You know what book I'm talking about right now? No, clearly, I've read it a lot. It's one of my favorites. <laughs> and they got moving, and they became something, and along the way, they lost something, and I don't want that to be our case. I don't want the same thing to be said about us. I don't want the same thing to be said about me. I know it's November, but I think one of the reasons why my heart broke so much in a good way last night is I think this is going to be a personal thing for me this next year is how do I go back to that first love? You know, before we started talking about all the different things we're going to do for Jesus, all the different theological debates and arguments and how we're going to actually embody our discipleship, all that is good. It's, it's, it's good. But do you love like you first did? When we think about, too, what it must have been like to be in Ephesus when Paul came through town and you heard for the first time the good news of Jesus, that you can move into a life of liberation, free from all the limitations of old, what is that initial feeling that must have been overwhelming to the people? Thanksgiving. Gratitude. That was, that's what it was for me. I'm grateful that this is true. I'm grateful for this incredible gift. And so I want to invite you this next week into an activity of sorts. We're going to have a, um, a Thanksgiving service next Sunday night where we want to name out loud what we are grateful for. We want to do this work of saying, this past year when I look back and I remember how Jesus has been there for me and I remember the places that he has moved in my life, we want to name out loud because there's power in naming it out loud what it is that we're grateful for. And how we're going to do that is we would invite you to find a, a thing, a, whatever it might be, a picture, a toy, a symbol of some sort. We'd ask you to bring it next Sunday night, some kind of symbol that you would say this embodies, though not in totality, it gives you a very clear image 
as to what I'm grateful for when I think about this past year. And then throughout the night, we're going to create space should you want to. Uh, we're going to have you first drop them off on stage, but then throughout the night, we're going to give you the opportunity if you want to, to pick it up and to tell out loud what it is that you're grateful for. Because gratitude is our way back home. When we talk about the shuva and repentance and finding our way back into that first kind of love, we do so through gratitude by naming how good God has been for crappy and crazy two-year-olds who puke all over you in the middle of the night, for church plants, where sometimes the slides work, sometimes they don't, for all the little things that make up our lives. Have you paused to turn around and just say thank you? Have you lived into the love that you used to live into? Pray with me. Lord, we love you, God. We forget that we love you, but we do love you, God. Lord, give us eyes, God, as we move forward into Thanksgiving with family and friends, and personal reflections as we move into the Advent season of anticipation. God, give us eyes to see how good you are, how good you've been, and remind us again of how much we love you. In Jesus' name, we pray all these things. Amen. Loving like we did at the beginning, loving like we used to. I love the reminder that re repenting is a turning back, it's a coming home. And that reminder of what it first felt like, that first experience, that's something that we do, that's a practice that we share together every Sunday night when we take part in communion, we pause. And we repent, we remember, we take time to be in that love that we first experienced and that we continue to experience, but sometimes we forget. So during the music, we invite you forward, and we'll have gluten-free elements. Did we change that? Okay, gluten-free elements up front, and then we'll have people on either side. Um, we invite you to take the bread and dip it into the cup. And in that moment, you get to pause. You get to take in that great love of a God who came to earth and ministered, and showed us what it means to really love. And the night before he died, he sat at a table with his disciples and he took bread and giving thanks he broke that bread and he said this is my body broken for you when you take this remember remember my great love for you and likewise he took wine and he poured it into the cup and he said this is my blood shed for you the new covenant and when you drink from this cup Remember me. Remember my love for you. And so that's what we do when we gather here on Sunday nights and we take the bread and we dip it into the cup. We come home. We remember that love. Please stand and together we'll pray the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, Hallowed be thy name. 
Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen.